Hello, this is Tanya Domi. Welcome to The Thought Project, recorded at the CUNY Graduate Center. In this space, we talk with faculty and doctoral students about the big thinking and big ideas, generating groundbreaking research, assisting New Yorkers, and informing the world. During Pride Month and over the course of the next few weeks, The Thought Project will host conversations on CUNY activities, research, and engagement on LGBTQ issues. Thanks for listening to The Thought Project, and happy Pride. Joining us today is Paisley Cura, a professor of political science and women's and gender studies at Brooklyn College and the CUNY Graduate Center. He is the author of Sex Is As Sex Does, Governing Transgender Identity, published by NYU Press 2022. Released last month, Sex Is As Sex Does was a highly anticipated publication, and Cura does not disappoint. He appears to have written a book that will take its canonical place among the writings that come to define our deeper understanding of transgender lives and their quest for freedom, taking its place within the most prominent academy literature. Welcome to The Thought Project, Professor Paisley Cura. Thank you, Tanya. I'm so happy to be here. Congratulations on the publication of your critically acclaimed book, Sex as Sex Does, published by New York University Press 2022. Also commendable is the publication of your essay extracted from the book by New York Review of Books and accompanying conversation that you had with editors Lucy Jacob and Max Nelson entitled The Asymmetry of Gender. I recommend this to all of our listeners. I just want to say you state up front in the introduction of your book that you reference sex legally. How did you come to that decision, which I deduce firstly it emanates from the first document issued in a person's life as a birth certificate? You discuss the birth certificates and the efforts to change a person's sex in this document at great length. It clearly is a central document in everyone's life, but in particular for people who seek to change their sex. So this discussion actually intersects with a broader discussion that you expound upon about the role of state and government agencies. So I'd like to hear your thoughts about the definition, using it legally, and then about the challenges that face transgender persons who want to change their sex from M to F or F to M, and now they can change to X? Yeah, that's a great question. Well, when I started doing this research, which was some years ago, this this book was in the oven for a long time. I was kept trying to figure out like, what is the definition of sex that judges and courts are going by? And what is the definition of sex that activists are using? And there were all these academic ideas about what sex is and social scientist ideas and ideas from policymakers like sex is the genitals you're assigned at birth or sex should be based on your gender identity or sex should be based on you know your current genitals post surgery there are all these debates about what sex is so what i did for the book as a methodological kind of innovation i just said you know what i'm not saying what sex is in any kind of actual definition i'm going to just look at sex as a decision made by an authority backed by the force of law like a state 
about sex classification. So I decided to not myself focus on what do I think sex should be, but just understand sex as a decision. And I can tell the story about how I kind of came to that. It was like an aha moment that took like seven years. I'm a slow thinker, but anyways, let me tell you the story. So in 2005, the city got together a committee, an ad hoc advisory committee to revisit its birth certificate policy. Because since the 70s, the city had a policy that said transsexual people born in the city can get a new birth certificate if they prove they've had convertive surgery, which I think, you know, they seem to have meant genital surgery, and then we'll issue them a new birth certificate. But the thing is, a new birth certificate had no gender on it. There would be no box for gender. So in the 1970s, like, okay, there was slightly progressive policy. But by 2005, New York, which prides itself, you know, on being a progressive city, it was pretty behind. It was pretty retrograde. So they convened this ad hoc committee to figure out what should be the criteria for people changing their sex classification. So this committee was like myself as a trans rights advocate and scholar and other trans rights advocates and transgender health experts and city officials and a couple of surgeons who are allies with the transgender community. But we came up with this definition that sex should be based on gender identity. That's like a person's internal sense of whether they're male or female. That is the only really workable and fair and just solution to, you know, letting people change their sex classification. It's interesting. It was not quite unanimous because the surgeon on the committee thought that the metric for measuring if someone has changed their sex should be surgery, which was a huge surprise. Anyway, so the Department of Health and Mental Hygiene agreed with the proposal and they put it up for public comment and they shopped it around to city agencies and then they withdrew it. They sort of changed their mind and they, instead of saying that sex should be based on gender identity, they decided that people would still have to have some sort of surgery. And it was very disappointing. They made the policy a little bit better because people would have surgery and then get a new birth certificate with M or F on it. But so many trans people, maybe the majority don't ever have genital surgery. So it's not really doing trans people a service. We found out when uh, we asked why they didn't support the proposal, they said they shopped it around to different city agencies. And a lot of the city agencies, some were okay with it. Uh, like the Department of Homeless Services and others like the Department of Corrections or whatever the city version of that were not okay with it. But the aha moment actually came like a few years later when the Transgender Legal Defense and Education uh, Group or fund. Fund, uh, yeah. Yeah, they sued the city. They said, this is a, not a good policy. This is arbitrary, irrational, capricious. And in legal discourse, governments aren't supposed to act capriciously and arbitrarily. They're supposed to have a good reason for what they do. And the city lawyers responded, they responded and they said, yeah, it's not irrational for us to have different definitions of sex at different agencies. They said sex serves a different purpose at different agencies. So it's perfectly rational for us to see sex, one agency to use sex one way and another to define it differently. And that's finally the kind of the, the, the penny drop. It was like, oh, okay, the advocates have been talking to the state as if we were talking about what sex is, some ideal definition. And the government policymakers, the bureaucrats were thinking about like, what sex does. And it has a, it works differently in different agencies because it depends on what the agency is doing. So that's when I, I realized, and the book is like sex is as sex does. It's not about the ideal definition. It's about sex as a tool of governance. Exactly. You um, talk about how these agencies don't talk to each other. They don't necessarily agree with each other. Courts give one decision and agencies you know, under their regulations may or may not agree. It seems that though there was a watershed as a consequence of this case, right? It sounds like it. It was a watershed for New York City after they were sued. Well, actually, what happened with New York City was the city defended the policy and, and we're not moving. 
And then at a certain point, uh, same-sex marriage became legal in New York City. And that was the watershed moment for what well, became legal in the state, but also in the city. That was a watershed moment because we realized that some of the policymakers were afraid that like, if they didn't have some kind of bodily standard or surgical metric that a cisgender lesbian and another cisgender lesbian would get married. And one of them would just say, oh yeah, I'm a man and I'm going to get married. So they were afraid they would actually enable same-sex marriages. Yes, you did. You did address that in your book. And I wanted to say that that's really not something that's on the forefront of a discussion on a daily basis in national organizations. I'm talking about LGBTQ mm-hmm. uh, organizations. And I want I want to give you credit, first of all, giving credit to the feminist community and the advances by women legally, which, which I want to get into later, but also about how same-sex marriage kind of really leveled it. You know, and it was over a period of many years because different states were adopting same-sex marriage before we ever got to the Supreme Court decision. Yeah, exactly. Marriage makes a a big difference. And we can talk later when we get to the feminism question. Yes. Um, But one of the things that, as you mentioned, like different government agencies don't necessarily talk to each other. The kind of corollary of that on the activist side is like we tend to think of the government as the government. In fact, we kind of have to break it down to all these different parts. There's the DMV. There's the place that issues birth certificates. There's the place that, like, you know, regulates, you know, schools. And there's all these different agencies, and they're doing different things. So sometimes when they have policies that seem contradictory with each other, that's not really a contradiction overall. It's because they're doing different things. So one of the things that when I've been talking about the book that a lot of people I'm sure you're aware, but a lot of people don't know about is that trans people can have different sex classifications on different documents. You know, it means that we're in this kind of Kafkaesque web of contradictions where the criteria for changing the mark, the sex marker on one document is different than for the criteria for another document. Another document. Yeah, right. there's a few states that won't allow anybody to change their birth certificate. And so for cisgender people, they don't have a problem because their birth sex and their gender identity is consistent. It's consistent. It's consistent. Exactly. But for trans people, there's all these different rules and all these different confusions. And then, you know, what constitutes changing a sex marker, right? Right. What is the evidence? So some places would require surgery. Some places wouldn't. In New York State, the DMV always had a pretty good policy, but it was worded that it would meant one thing to advocates and a different thing maybe to policymakers. It said the person has all has had all the medical treatment they need, you know, and to a transgender healthcare expert, all the medical treatment a trans people needs might add up to zero because people, some people transition socially and they don't need any kind of body interventions. But from the policymaker side, when they hear all the medical treatment they need, they're imagining the whole kit and caboodle. They're imagining all these surgeries and all these hormones and so on. So for now in New York state, it's pretty good. But for years, it was sometimes these sex classification changes were based on doctors writing letters that were drafted by lawyers uh, that basically kind of glossed over the fact that people weren't having surgery. Right. And I just want to say that you referred to it as Kafiesque, and it certainly is. I can't imagine the negotiating and how you have to get the right documents so that you can live. Right. You can live and move freely in the world. I know, because I am a college professor who with time on my hands, like I'm, you know, like if I have a health insurance problem, I can just be on hold for two hours. You know what I mean? And be right, papers. Right. So like, you know, so, but like 
for me, gathering all the different documents for the Social Security Administration for a driver's license, and then I was born in Canada or the province of Ontario, and I actually had to go to Ontario and I had to be examined by a doctor. It was very embarrassed about the whole thing, and they didn't charge me because, like, this is Canada, we don't charge people. But still, like, that was all the stuff I had to do to just change my ID and relatively friendly policies means that people who have less privilege, they can't get affidavits, they can't get PDFs, they don't have access to doctor's letters. It puts a lot of people in a very vulnerable position with respect to their identity documents. Of course. So speaking of that, and just talking about the differences between these terms, you also talk about gender pluralism and how that might be the imagined place that could be created that does, in fact, perhaps advance the concept of liberation for queer people and women, ideally getting the state out of the business of determining and regulating sex backed by the force of law. So tell our audience, I mean, I I love the idea of gender pluralism, but tell me your understanding of it. Sure. I mean, it's basically an, an, an analogy to religious pluralism. So people might have very strong beliefs about gender and what sex is and what the relation is between sex, the body at birth and gender. Mm-hmm. And that's fine. But the point is the government shouldn't be in the business of saying what the relationship should be between birth, sex, and gender identity. It just like as it shouldn't be in the business of saying, like, do you believe in transubstantiation or not? I mean, I, I right. get all mixed up right. on Christian theology, but it should not be in the business of deciding what people's religious beliefs are. So the idea is that the government, the state, should disestablish itself from gender and stop regulating people's gender identity and saying, like, you can call yourself a male, but we're going to put female on your identity documents. And we see this now with the youth and young people. There's not just two genders. There's so many different genders. Like I have a 12-year-old and I'm always trying to impress them. They had to uh, do a project for class and they had to interview a gender expert. And I didn't even, <laughs> but to get this, I didn't even make the short list of the gender oh, experts. Whoa. Because <laughs> kid is always on TikTok and always talking about this stuff on TikTok. And I don't know half the terms that they're talking about, like all well, these new genders. This goes right into my next comment. It just It's really interesting that you're talking about this because the Public Science Project did this national survey of six U.S. cities, and the title of it was What's Your Issue? And they were surveying queer youth and people who identify that way. But what came out of that survey was more than 300 different and unique queer identities. So speaking of which, I was working with the project to say, okay, we're going to roll this out. And we called the MAP project out in San Francisco. This is like about four or five years ago. And we were saying people identify this way and that way. They go, you can't say that. You can't say that. You can't say that. I said, they're saying it. We're going to use it. And by the way, the New York Times right now is portraying transgender people because they had to recover from many mistakes they made. And they got with it with regard to transgender people no longer talking about them as, you know, prostitutes. So this is a perfect segue here. There's been this sea change. It's a sea change and a boom in transgender visibility across our society in different aspects of it, from athletes to soldiers to people on Broadway who have always been there. But do you think right now we're actually experiencing a backlash to that, that advance? What's your thoughts on that? I think that's such an important observation. I think it's 
partly a backlash, but I think it's more, it more mirrors the larger kind of like division of the country along partisan lines that are like, they look on a map geographical, right? We look like we have blue states and red states. Right. But in fact, in blue states, there's a lot of so-called red people. And in red states, there's a lot of so-called blue people. Maybe there's a 10% difference. It's not like we live in a blue and red country, but nevertheless, with the way our system is designed and gerrymandering and so on, we have what political scientists have called a democratic deficit when it comes to LGBT policies. So there's democratic deficits with most policies, like most people support gun control, yet we don't have it in most states. And most people support transgender positive legislation, but a lot of Southern states and red states don't have it. Even if there's like 65% of the population supports those policies. Andrew Flores and other political scientists have said that with the democratic deficit for transgender people is so bad, you have to have 81% approval of a policy before anyone right. has a chance. Right. So I think we're seeing, it's not so much a backlash, but this kind of partisan- um, The polarization. Polarization. here, right? Exactly, exactly. And the attack on transgender people and especially transgender youth, it's a proxy for attacking gender equality generally. And I agree. I think it's about gender. Absolutely. Yeah. Gender identity. It's about women. It's about controlling people's bodies and Absolutely. Their, their ability to move around in society. I just want to also add, I mean, many people already know this, but over 100 anti-trans laws have been introduced, but about 20 states have adopted them. And, you know, seeing these attacks on young trans youth is it's very, very sobering. And also just this past week, white supremacy militia were arrested in Idaho in the back of a U-Haul, about 31 men, 32 men that were prepared to attack a a pride event in Idaho. This is um, beginning to be consistent. I mean, the advance of Republican politics that's anti-abortion, anti-LGBT, Now you're seeing that uh, queer people, too, are the tip of the spear in in this advance by the Republicans. Yeah, absolutely. And just last night, there was a fire in Baltimore where a couple of houses with gay pride flags were set afire. And two people are critically injured, one seriously injured. Detroit gay bar burned down last night. So there's no... They're being investigated. Oh, wow. I didn't crimes. know that. We're wow. really at this very scary uh, moment where some of the the discourse from so-called I don't I don't know what you call them so-called but the discourse from Republican can we call them thought leaders I don't know Ben Shapiro types with has a, a brain re- deficit as well <laughs> yeah. excuse yeah. me thank you right but there, it has an effect on um on the, the more so-called fringy elements and I just think like it's a at a really dangerous moment, as, as we are in so many different ways in American politics and policy. Absolutely. It's 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 not just LGBT issues. No, for sure. of course not. I, I, I'm very concerned about Roe and about women in general. I want to go on to another aspect of, of which I loved. I appreciated your product recall, quote unquote, <laughs> of your earlier work that was attached to a normative ideal of how the state should treat trans people. Indeed, you do mention with respect to changing your own sex on a birth certificate and a driver's license shouldn't be incumbent on sexual assignment surgeries. We were just talking about this, but I I do want to share a case with you because it happens to be a case that a, a colleague of mine in Europe brought to the European Court of Human Rights, and she brought it in 1986 in Reese v. United Kingdom with respect to transgender rights. It was the first decision by that court. And the the trans community asked her 
they insisted that medical surgeries be included so that people could establish their sex. And she told me, Madeline Reese, a good friend, well-known feminist, lesbian, who's just tremendous. She tells me to this day that she deeply laments that decision. Right. Interesting one. I think it's evolved since then, but it was in place for a long time. I know. And I was talking with this with a colleague the other day, like with transgender advocacy in legal systems. And I think it's very different now, but back in the 80s, the States was often modeled on gay activism and gay activism and gay legal rights discourse tended to think that we have to say we're born that way. We have to say we can't change who we are uh, to be protected by the Bill of Rights, by the Constitution, the Supreme Court. And the idea is that the Black civil rights movement was understood as articulating freedom for people based on a characteristic that can't change. And the courts seemed to go along with that. So every other group thought, oh, we have to say that we have an immutable identity. And so the gay rights folks did that. And transgender rights litigation was basing it not so much. I mean, we were, but you you mentioned in the book we were born that way. That was very present also when I was in the movement in the nineties. Yeah. yeah, because it's true that often people who don't have a lot of uh, contact with queer people they feel more comfortable with something that someone someone has you know can't change. But the right. problem is, as you suggest, is it kind of it leaves other people out. So what I, what I'm suggesting in the book is that it's not like anybody's own account of their gender is wrong. We just need to have a room for everybody's account. We can't say, oh, born that way or born in the wrong body is the right narrative. And we also can't say, oh, Judith Butler is socially constructed. We don't have to choose that narrative either. And it's a separate article called like transgender rights without a theory of gender. I say, we don't have to have a theory of gender. We just need to say, here are people, here are harms that are being done to them. And let's fix that. Because I think getting drawn into like a theory of gender is like, it's a debate that is not unnecessary. I really appreciated that, too, in your book about we don't really need a theory. People are what they are and how they Mm -hmm, mm self-identify. Exactly. I think that's right on. So back to the recall here, Paisley. I mean, don't you think it's obvious that things have really changed? Lots of things have changed. And you've been at this for a long time, uh, over 30 years myself included. I started doing activism over 30 years ago. So your scholarship would change, you know, but the recall thing I thought was amusing and fun. And maybe you should write like a response to the (laughs) earlier book. I know because academics, sometimes we don't admit our own failings. You know, we pretend like we always had the same ideas, but it's not always true. So the recall was a little bit, it wasn't exactly a recall about gender pluralism, but the one thing about gender pluralism is it said, okay, the state should get out of the business of policing sex, which I agree with. I totally agree with. But one of the problems is that we still have like gender-based hierarchies in the economy and in culture. Like women still do all this care work. You know, women still, there's still this like deep, deep, deep levels of misogyny. And when we talk about like gender pluralism, one thing that drops out of that is an emphasis on gender asymmetry or like the fact that gender is always about hierarchy. So I think my gender pluralism point is still a good one, but it's it's legalistic. It looks at how the state defines sex. But now we have the state does not discriminate against women and except for abortion, which we can talk about, but we still have all this cultural 
hierarchies around gender. And we trans people need to kind of be able to um, to talk about that. And I think a lot of trans feminists like Julia Serrano, folks who talk about trans misogyny, it's an important way to kind of keep misogyny front and center and not just act like, oh, there are just many genders and it's all fine. It's actually not fine because there's still so much misogyny. There's so much kind. misogyny. And you speak about the fact that it's built on this really paternalistic English customary law that this country was built on so that poor people continue to be poor and that women make much less in wages than men that with same levels of education or training. I think you, you repeatedly point that out to your credit. Yeah, because one of the larger narratives of the book and it's not very popular right now, but is to reconsider transphobia as the explanation for every bad thing that happens to transgender people. So like if we have a policy harms transgender people think, oh, that's transphobic. And it has effects that harm transgender people. But one of the things I point out is that sex classification is baked in to the legal architecture because the government needed a way to distinguish men from women because men got more rights and resources. So that's why sex classification is in there. And then trans people come along. We're not anticipated when they write up the classification. And they were like, oh, you can we'll let you change your sex or, oh, no, we won't. But it's because sex is in there in the first place because of gender discrimination. And as the barriers to the states got out of the business of discriminating against women in the course of the 20th century, that actually opened up so many more possibilities for transgender people to have our gender legally recognized. And sometimes we act like the transgender rights movement succeeded on its own. And it, it certainly did in terms of like making rights claims and being an identifiable group. Of course. It also succeeded because gender didn't matter so much in the state distribution of resources. And especially with the Supreme Court decision in 2015 that said the ban on same-sex marriage was unconstitutional. On Bostock. You're talking about Bostock. No, no. Right? Actually, here I'm talking I'm about so. Obergefell. So oh, okay. When they sorry. said, because um, yes. the yes. ban on same-sex marriage was obviously targeting gays, but it was also holding up the institution of marriage as like fundamentally a hierarchical institution. So we talk about fighting for same-sex marriage as like a gay rights quest. Well, if you look at the briefs that a lot of folks did, because I had friends who were working on this, a lot of them also point out that marriage is all about maintaining sex inequality. And so one of the reasons to kind of get rid of marriage or else make marriage open to everybody is to get rid of the idea or is to challenge the idea that like there's this natural hierarchy in marriage. Right. And there are people in the movement that say, I don't want to get married because that's also the state regulating relationships. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so, Go ahead. And so, no, you go ahead, please. So part of the book is kind of a little bit of trying to get us to move beyond identity politics, which is like, you know, passing a non-discrimination law or recognizing our us on identity on identity documents. Those things are necessary conditions for making the world a better place for trans and queer people, but they're not sufficient. So one of the things I say is that the three policies that would help the most trans people the most are not like non-discrimination laws or gender recognition laws. So those are good. Those policy, are baseline though. They're baseline. They're baseline. The right. policies that would have the most people the most would be uh, having a, you know, a, a, a national public health care plan would be prison abolition and would be a huge attack on income inequality. That's what would help most trans people the most. And people focus- are very vulnerable in housing and food and employment when you're right. trans and you don't have the right documents. Exactly. Like, for example, with prisons, a lot of the kind of mainstream trans rights advocate groups will talk about, look, if we don't have an employment discrimination law that includes trans people, they'll have to do stuff that's illegal and they'll end up in prison. 
but it doesn't fundamentally question the carceral state or the fact that prisons are actually right. part of our economic policy. Or they'll say, look at trans prisoners. They suffer so much. I completely agree. But the, sometimes the way the argument is put is it makes it, sa- it, makes it sound like cis, cis prisoners are just fine. And, you know, like, cis prisoners are getting Advil for cancer. Like the, the situation right. that cisgender prisoners are faced is also a crisis. So I think we need to kind of have a, a larger worldview than just the identity politics one. You do get credit, I think, um, about the fact that you say that it isn't, it's not all on transphobia and you write it so well and you document it so well that it's a larger, much more nuanced conversation because people want to say, well, of course they hate us. You know, of course they hate us. Well, they might, but because of some of these recent legal decisions, it's really has changed the situation on the ground. And I do want to give some credit on the eventual decision by Bostock, but I want to suggest to you that I think we should give some uh, credit here to the EEOC case and Macy versus Holder, in which the EEOC commission and High Feldblum, who actually Mm -hmm. used to work with former colleague of mine in Washington, this was her theory that it was really sex discrimination. And so I think that fed into the eventual victory in Bostock. What are your thoughts about that? Oh, yeah, I totally agree. And I've long admired um, High's work and yes. also people like Jennifer Levi from Gay and Lesbian Advocates and Defenders who have really oh, put, sure. Wonderful se- work. Right. Yes. But, but sex discrimination front and center. Like years ago, Jennifer had this case about a person, I don't know their gender identity, that applied for a bank loan wearing a dress, but they appeared to the bank as having been assigned to the male sex. And they're like, we're not giving you a loan. And they litigated right. that as like sex discrimination, which it was because it's based on these stereotypes about who you have to be gender appropriate to get a bank loan. So the good thing about Bostock, which was written by Justice Gorsuch, is that when someone, you know, has a gender identity that's different than the sex assigned at birth. Right. And is discriminated against. That's clearly sex discrimination. And the court, you know, had never really held that before. The highest court they had back in um, the late. 70s or early 80s, they had, you know, denied cert on a case where Eastern Airline fired a, a, a woman. She had transitioned. And uh, when they came, she came back, she was a pilot. When she came back after transitioning, they just, Eastern Airlines just fired her. And the, and the court held, oh, Eastern Airlines didn't fire her because she was born a man. And they didn't fire her because now she's a woman. They fired her because she changed from being a man to a woman. To a woman. And the thing is, that would and never that's sex. And that's right. on sex, right? I know. But they would never say that in a case saying, oh, this person wasn't fired because they're a Buddhist and that they weren't fired because they're True. not a Protestant. They're True. fired because they changed. So it's just like we can see how the cultural changes have had effect, even on people like Justice Gorsuch, where they see that sex discrimination, you know, includes transgender people. But that's that's a good decision. But the other shoe is yet to drop, which will be they're going to be starting to have some huge religious exemptions and any kind of non-discrimination law that, that are coming down the pike. So that doesn't surprise me at all. And that would be consistent with this Christian only America that the Republicans are espousing. Um, interesting, interesting, interesting. Let me just ask you uh, about the role of the women's community and, and the, the advances of uh, the legal victories, which one we just mentioned, about how that you give so much credit to uh, women. And I feel like you really identify with the women's movements and feminism in a way that I'm not used to hearing from a man. So I just want to say that. 
and it's it's inspiring, as a matter of fact. I'll just say that this part of your scholarship inspires me. The whole issue about women's status and legal scrutiny, it's always been at the intermediate level. So these legal advances are quite significant. This has all happened during my lifetime. I mean, I've lived this, personally lived it. So now we're looking at, I think, a baseline issue of rights about how women are able to control their bodily agency and their ability to exercise their full spectrum of human rights is now in peril as we anticipate the decision on the Mississippi case by the Supreme Court that would, in fact, roll back Roe v. Wade. What are your thoughts on this in the context of the women's movement and feminism and, and how, you've, how you actually very much embrace it? Right. Well, a friend of mine uh, pointed out, and this is true, you probably noticed it too. I keep saying sex has been disestablished and the government doesn't make distinction between men and women, except abortion. And I always say, except abortion. And I save that to the conclusion and probably sing it to another book because Dobbs hadn't happened when I turned the, the manuscript in. But I think we can see the attack on uh, women's reproductive rights and the attack on trans people as two sides of the same corn. Because the point of Roe is to like, return women to this kind of secondary status where if you don't have control of your reproduction, if you have to become pregnant and stay pregnant, like that has huge effects on huge psychic and economic and physical effects that could last a lifetime. So getting rid of abortion and possibly contraception, as some governors have indicated, is a way to kind of bring back the gender hierarchy. But the other side of the coin is like they have to kind of maintain the division between men and women. So they're guarding the, the binary, making sure the binary. Right. They're, in, they're reinforcing the binary. Right. right. And, I, and I think for so, transgender people have been very good about questioning the binary. And feminists have done such a good job of talking about how the a gender is a distributive mechanism. That's like a boring political theory word, but mm-hmm. um, it's, a hi- it's a hierarchy. And so what my book tries to do is kind of show how they're like necessarily together because you Gender can't really work as a distributive mechanism unless you know who the men and who the women are. And so I think abortion is really critical to this Republican uh, trying to kind of reinstate a certain kind of, you know, conservative gender regime. Yes, gender regime. That's a really good description of it. I want to say to you, Paisley, it's about the document, stupid. (laughs) And congratulations on this really incredible book. And I'm going to have to keep rereading it because it's so deaf and so nuanced. And it's really beautiful writing, but it's also just really inspirational. And I do want to give you great credit. So congratulations. Well, Tanya, thank you so much. It's really been a pleasure talking with you. I hope to catch up with you again soon. Yeah. Thanks for tuning into The Thought Project. And thanks to our guest, Professor Paisley Curra of Brooklyn College and the CUNY Graduate Center. The Thought Project is brought to you with production, engineering, and technical assistance by audio engineer Kevin Wolf and CUNY TV. I'm Tanya Domi. Tune in next week.